morning. My name is Nick Gillespie. I'm the community life pastor here at Covenant Church. And uh, yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you. Um, if this is like your first time just checking out Covenant, like this church, we're just so glad that you uh, decided to join us this morning. So I um, hope you enjoyed the music and are enjoying just kind of being in the fellowship. We've got some great people around here. Uh, so I was trying to think of how to start my sermon was thinking along the tracks of trying to find a story of when I was devastated by having unmet expectations. And I just had too many examples to, uh, that came to mind. It was hard for me to narrow it down. And so I'll just take last night <laughs> as, <laughs> uh, I'll just pull that one. Um, so Allie, uh, my wife, uh, decides that she's going to have a nutcracker night with the girls. And so me and the boys steered clear of that one and had a sports night. Um, and so we first, you know, we went, got some tickets, went to the men's bat, the Falcons men's basketball game and watched them take care of uh, business against the uh, Golden Bears. Um, had a super good time, a really exciting game. And so uh, afterwards, we were going to head back to our house and then watch the Buckeyes play uh, the Badgers for the Big Ten Championship. And so... <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm gonna about ready to uh, tell you our emotional state through the whole endeavor. Um, so we get back to uh, the house, uh, get some eggnog, we take off the Falcon gear, put on the Ohio State gear, and uh, we're going to start watching the Buckeyes play. And so uh, first drive, you know, in five plays, Wisconsin comes down and like scores a touchdown, and my son, literally, his, his hand is are in his face. I mean, he's crying. He's crying. I'm like, but it's two and a half minutes into the game. Like, we got to get ourselves together. Like, let's see what happens. Let's watch this thing play out here, you know? And they scored another touchdown. And then he's really devastated. And so, basically, I, at halftime, with the Buckeyes not looking very good, I forced my kids to go to bed because they need sleep. And that's more important than the Buckeyes. This is true, right? Parent, sleep is more important than Buckeyes. Um, so, I, I made them go to bed. And so, me and my son are having a conversation. He's like, Dad, like, what, what's going to happen? Like, they're going to lose. Like, we, we, I can't have them lose. And I was like, it's okay if they lose. Like, say it. It's okay if they lose. No, Dad, I won't say that it's okay if they lose. I refuse. They're undefeated. They've never lost before. I'm like, son, we are also Bengals fans. We've seen plenty of losing. And he's like, yeah, but they always lose. The Buckeyes never lose. And so my son is like having this like, inner tension, right? Expectation, anticipation. The Buckeyes are going to cream Wisconsin, right? And then reality, things don't work out exactly the way you want them to. And that can be quite devastating. And can't this sometimes be the way Christmas can feel? I mean, we call it the holiday blues for a reason, meaning that we have all this anticipation that Christmas is going to have a payoff. There's these promises that Christmas is going to deliver something, some sort of joy and happiness. And when it doesn't quite pan out the way that we want it to, it can be really hard and devastating. That what anticipation really means is that what we anticipate speaks to what we put our hope in. That what we anticipate reveals our true hope this season. Uh, Tish Harrison Warren just wrote this this past week in an op-ed piece uh, for the New York Times. She wrote this. She says, American culture insists that we run at breathless pace from sugar lace celebration to celebration. Three months of Christmas to the Super Bowl, Mardi Gras, Valentine's Day, Cinco de Mayo, Fourth of July, and on and on. 
we suffer from a collective consumeristic mania that demands that we remain optimistic, shiny, happy, and having fun, fun, fun. But she goes on. But life is in a Disney cruise. The tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often, ironically, feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from holiday blues, and I wonder whether this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer. The collective lie that through enough work and positivity that we can perfect our lives in our world. That our culture puts before us a Christian narrative, a, uh, sorry, a Christmas narrative, a Christmas story that is all just smiling faces. My wife and I chuckled at one another in a painful way when we saw this Walmart commercial of this couple buying gifts for their kids with smiles on their faces. And she, Allie turns to me and is like, that's exactly what it's like. It's really, you're stressed out, you're paying way more than you want to, and you probably got in a fight, you know? But our Christmas narrative in our culture promises something, and can it really actually deliver on that promise? And is that the same narrative that we get from what the Lord tells us in the Bible? Is that the same narrative? Is that what we're really supposed to be anticipating? The Christmas narrative is not that a bright light came into the light. It's that the light came into the darkness. The Christmas narrative is that there is darkness in this world and in us, and that only the light of God pierced it. And it's that narrative that we have to look into and say, what is this darkness that God addresses, that the Bible speaks of, that we experience? And then what does it mean that the light came into it? What was he going to do? And so we're going to take a look at a passage in scripture in Malachi. And this is probably not your necessarily your typical Christmas passage that you would take a look at because it actually kind of gets into the nitty gritty of what was going on in the hearts of God's people 400 years before Jesus came. And then it's going to get into God saying that he's going to send somebody and what that person is going to do, what, what the coming Messiah was going to actually like do. And so we're going to kind of like get into this text. We're going to take a look at what was going on with God's people. How, that, how does that relate to us? And then what from that can we capture from our understanding of what the Christmas narrative is really pointing us to? What we can really anticipate and where our hope really is. All right, so let's dive into this text, Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. The prophet writes, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord, Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like silver and gold. And they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in the former years. Then I'll draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, 
against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. So this is a rather intense scripture that has some context, as I said, and so let's kind of dive into that together and realize or kind of hear like what's going on. So the, uh, the beginning of our text starts with God saying that he is tired of his people. So he's writing, he's speaking, he's addressing his people. And he's like, I'm tired of you. You've made me weary. This is like when we say like my, you know, I'm tired of my boss or she's so difficult to be around, you know, or he's so hard to be friends with, you know, those sort of things. Isn't it? It's kind of crazy that God would say that of his own people, but he says, I am tired of you. So why? Why is he saying, I, I am wearied by you? Well, it seems that his own people kind of pretended that the relationship with him was better than it really was. You could say like, you know, if we put it in dating terms, he would love to date her, but she friend zoned him. He would love to spend some time with her and she's just not interested. It's cool just being friends. And the Lord wants more from his people, but the people are like, we're okay if you're just sort of here, you know, but we don't want to give all the way into this relationship with you. What do they say? They say, all that is evil, all that the Lord might call evil, well, we actually just think that that's all, all okay. We're all good. Every single one of us, we're all good. You're good, I'm good. As long as we keep on the happy face and say we're fine, then we're all good. And then on top of that, when life doesn't go their way or they're disappointed, what do they say? Well, they say, well, where was God? Life's not fair. It's not working the way I wanted to. Well, where's God? And so they accuse God when it's convenient. But when they're fine, then they don't want anything to do with God. And God is frustrated with the nature of his relationship with his people. So how did they get this way? It didn't just happen. So the way that the story goes in the Old Testament is that God gave his people a land and he said, I will establish you here. We'll establish worship. And if you follow me, I will bless you and you'll be a blessing to the nations. But Israel continued to reject this relationship with God. They worshiped other idols from other nations. They conformed their moral lifestyle to the other nations. And they said, yeah, we'll do some God, but we're also going to do these things too. And after generation upon generation upon generation of this same pattern repeating itself, the Lord finally removed his people from the land and they were taken to the land of Babylon. They were exiled. And so for 70 years, they're estranged from the land. And then God graciously breaks into history and brings his people out of Babylon back. And he gives them the land back. And so for a short time, Israel felt a sense of gratitude. I mean, they were experiencing the mercy and grace of God. And as they came back to the land, they're like, we're going to double down on this thing. We're going to rebuild and we're going to recommit to God. So they begin rebuilding. They rebuild the walls of the fortresses. They begin to rebuild and cultivate the land and they recommit. Right? They rebuild the temple and they're going to commit to actually being faithful and holding each other accountable to following the Lord. Well, it's short-lived. 
Because within a couple of generations, Malachi writes his letter to people who have become pretty apathetic towards God. Well, what happened? These people who got back from Babylon, it's not the way it used to be. They thought that it was going to be better than it really was. The temple wasn't as glorious as it was in its heyday. It used to be lined with gold, and now it's just stones. The walls aren't what they used to be. They're not as tall or as strong as they once were. Our land is but a postage stamp of what it was before. And our people are much fewer than what they used to be. And so they look at their reality, and they're disappointed with what God has given them. And so instead of really dealing with that disappointment, they just sort of friend-zone God. Sort of, we didn't do anything to deserve this. We're trying our best. We're all okay with one another. And, and we can't really hope in God anymore because he doesn't deliver. So there's a couple of different like, consequences of this. First, they lost their hope in God. They just began to cease to place their hope in him. Francis Nietzsche wrote decades ago and uses madman of saying God is dead. And when Francis Nietzsche wrote that about our Western culture, what he was saying was that the enlightenment, the enlightenment brought basically our focus as people onto that which is uh, evidenced by our senses, that which we can measure and taste and touch and see. And so we, and we discounted anything that was mysterious or spiritual and we just said, whatever is right in front of us is like what we've got. And so because of that, as Western culture, that's what we began to look for. We began to look at life for the things that we can see right now. We began to not hope in anything that was eternal. Or again, that we couldn't see or taste or touch right now. And that's kind of the way I feel like where we're at right now with like our culture. Like we don't search for God. I'm not saying our room, this room necessarily. I'm just saying... If you look at our culture, people don't really look to God for any amount of solutions or hope in life. He's irrelevant. Why would you search there? Because he doesn't do anything for us. When we look at the state of the church, and there's lots of like research that is coming out about the state of the church and that the church is shrinking and going smaller. People's giving is down or whatever it is, whatever metrics you want to like look at. And in some ways, that's somewhat of the reality that we can look at and feel like we lose hope that our God is actually doing stuff now. So Israel lost hope in God. They also began to settle for immediate comforts. So if, there's no, if God's not doing anything for us, if there's nothing that he's going like, to come through for us, well, then we'll just kind of make of life what we can right now. They began to engage in seeking after sexual pleasure, financial security, moral conformity. If you read through the book of Malachi, which will probably take you like 15, 20 minutes, you'll see the Lord actually unpack these things with his people. You know, he says to them, you say that you're tired of serving me. And he says to them, you offer sacrifices, but you don't really care because they just are going through the motions and they're trying to find happiness wherever they can find happiness. And then lastly, they just cease to anticipate anything from God. They cease to anticipate that he's going to really deliver and really be who he is. I mean, have you ever had that conversation with someone? I mean, I know that, you know, between me and my wife, when we're fighting through something, I want to like fight through it. And then sometimes I feel like it just goes cold because she doesn't have any hope that it's going to like get to a point of resolve. 
right? And when you're at that place where you just sort of have like lost hope, you just are stagnant. God's people have become stagnant. They cease to anticipate that there was anything more between them and the Lord. And so what does God do? Now, I think what God does is incredibly amazing. I mean, if I'm a parent, my kids do this to me, I might come down with some serious consequences. Let's take away some privileges, you know, let's show them how good they really have it, you know, that sort of thing. But that's not what the Lord does. What does the Lord do? He doesn't reprimand them. He doesn't chastise them. He focuses their attention on one single reality, that he's coming. He says, you think I'm not involved. You think I'm not going to come. But I'm telling you, I am coming. I will come again. I'm going to show up. That's where he draws their attention to. And then when I show up, I'm going to do something. When I show up, I'm going to clean things. I'm going to set things right. I'm going to give you the peace and the joy you long to have. I'm going to satisfy you in ways that you don't, you don't even know of what that would be like. And so his coming, he promises that he's going to come again. And that coming is something incredible. Last week, Kyle kind of unpacked for us that his first coming was as a baby. That when he came, he came as a baby because uh, God is the God with us and he's approachable. And so in this time, speaking this time, now is the time to approach him. Now is the time to approach him and receive grace and mercy and forgiveness. But this coming is the second coming. This coming is when God is actually going to come and set things right. And set things the way that they ought to be. And so in light of this second coming, this means different things for us. First, his second coming means that we can actually lean into the darkness of a world. As I mentioned at the very beginning, that Christmas is a season of actually acknowledging that things aren't the way that we want them to be. That there's disappointment. That there's grief in our hearts. That there's pain in our world. That there's injustice. And as those who follow Jesus, follow God, we don't ignore those things. We don't pretend that they don't exist or that we don't encounter them. We don't just try to say like, you know, it'll all get better in the end. Because there's real hurt. You know, probably about 112 times, if I estimate 2.5 times per week, I have some moment where I say to myself, man, I cannot believe I just did that. I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe that I didn't know that I shouldn't have done that. Like all the time I'm confronted with my own shortcomings, that all the time I'm confronted with my own darkness, that I'm selfish. In fact, I think getting married and having children has exposed more of these moments in my own life of like what's really going on inside of like Nick. And Jesus coming again and saying that he's going to like cleanse me, I mean, that invites me not to run away from what's true about me, but to embrace it, to say these things are true. I don't have the answers. I can't fix myself. It's God who actually steps in and begins to clean and wash and renew. And for Israel, God was saying, and what he was wearied of, he wasn't wearied that, of loving them. He was wearied that they kept on pretending that they were better than they really were. And the Christmas season is them embracing who they really are, the darkness within. But then there's also the darkness that surrounds, that we live in a fallen world, that 
global warming is an issue. And in fact, it's not just an issue now. Humans have always had a hard time stewarding this earth. Slavery of all kinds has always existed. It does now. It's prevalent. But it always has. Sexism, racism, injustice, malnutrition, illness, disease. And we could just list these things off. And we don't sink into a place of depravity, but we acknowledge what is. And we enter into those things as they are and as we experience them. Because we know we don't have to be the one to have the solution to it. It's Christ. So his coming means that we lean into the darkness. Secondly, his coming dispenses a true peace and joy. That there is real peace and joy because he's the one that actually has like all the answers. He's the one that actually has a power to do something about it. I remember in eighth grade reading the book, Lord of the Flies. You guys read Lord of the Flies? When you're in eighth grade, the way the story starts out, you're like, this is going to be awesome. A bunch of boys on an island having an adventure. And then you read about these bunch of boys on an island manipulating power and eventually killing one another. Like, you see that there's this innocence, and then it descends into, like, this darkness and this chaos. And you're like, as you're reading the narrative, you're like, someone has got to step in and set these boys to right and, like, put some order into this thing. And then the officer or the soldier shows up, and then these boys are kind of, like, caught with their hand in the cookie jar. Um... Christ says this in Mark 13, 24, and then, all right, of the second coming, when he will come again, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and great glory. That God is going to come with great power and great glory. And that we have peace because he will show up. No matter what life is like or where we're at with ourselves or the world or others, that we can look and say, no, Jesus is going to come. And even though we don't have all the answers, even though we're not sure how this thing is going to play it out, he does. And he's going to set this thing right. His coming, lastly, imparts a hope that we can cling to. A real hope that we can sink our teeth in. We operate so much by anticipation and hope. We can't help as human beings but anticipate things. Part of the fun of vacationing for my wife is anticipating the vacation. You know, she looks forward to the, let's talk about what it's going to be like, you know, that sort of thing. Let's get ready for the thing. Um, anticipation is, is part of who we are because we have to live for something. We're made to live for something and towards something. And this is what we live for and towards. Again, that he's coming. I grew up in a neighborhood uh, that was actually, it was called Sherwood Forest. So all the streets were like Robin Hood themed. Made Marianne, you know, all that kind of stuff. Went to Sherwood Elementary. And so I guess maybe I have an affinity for Robin Hood because of that. What I love about Robin Hood, though, is that Robin Hood speaks of this guy who put his hope in the coming of the true king, King Richard, and not in the Sheriff of Nottingham. The Sheriff of Nottingham had rule and he had power. And people in that moment, if they wanted to live a happy life, conformed to that rule and that power. But Robin Hood rejected that. Because he said, there's a truer, righter king that will show up. And he will come again. And once he comes again, he's going to set this thing right. And for us, the temptation is to think that whatever is ruling this earth, whatever is in control right now, whatever values are being promoted right now, whatever path to life that we can get from this earth that that's the truest reality but it's not 
It's a temporary rule that will be superseded by the true and living God when he shows up again, when he comes again that second time. And so for us, we hope and cling and look towards that day. Uh, I was raised by a single mom. And uh, one of the, I don't, do I call this a benefit? One of the things I learned, by, I've learned many things about being raised by a single mom. One of the things I learned is that mom always comes home. So my mom worked nine to five, which meant uh, after school, there's about three or four hours where I got home and I was unsupervised. Unsupervised Nick is a dangerous thing. <laughs> he can get into all kinds of different trouble, including spray painting his model car in the kitchen. Mom was not happy with the model car silhouette on the wallpaper. <laughs> and any number of things, you know, any number of things that I destroyed or misused, however I misused her house or did things in her house that she wasn't, you know, mom always came home. And when she came home, she set her house back in order. And, and I learned that the house is not mine, and that my sister is not a punching bag. She's actually my mom's daughter. And what I realized is that I, if I live and good stewardship of those three to four hours that I had, that it was fun having mom come in, and she would heap praises on us for living in light of the fact that she was going to come again. But when we lived as if she wasn't coming again, if I lived as if those three and four hours was eternity, I, mean, I, I was afraid those 15 minutes before I expected mom to walk through the door because I, I had it coming to me. And so for us, we don't have to fear about this concept, this truth that Jesus is showing up again with real power to fix it, to be the light in the darkness. And if I live in light of that reality, then it's actually a glorious time. And it's something I can expect and be excited that God is going to come and we can be together. And he's going to heap praises on those who live in light of that, of that reality. So Christmas is our yearly opportunity to consider our anticipations. Christmas is our annual moment where we can say, what are we really anticipating? Where is our hope? How can I live in light of that? So I just have a couple questions I want to ask you to consider this holiday season. The first is, do you have real joy? Like, do you have real joy? I know that there's been times I've been disappointed even during this season. I've even gotten to the end of it and had wonderful Christmases only to like have the other shoe drop. And when that happens... It's not that I should be overly disappointed in myself. I should just reflect, like maybe potentially I, I was putting my hope in something that was not the real thing. I was putting it in this other Christmas story, this other Christmas narrative, as opposed to the narrative that, that's a narrative of the true and living Jesus Christ. So when we find those places where maybe we lack joy, we can consider where our heart is at. Are you guarding your heart? Scripture speaks about our heart being the wellspring of our life. That what we treasure, what we treasure is who we're becoming. It's what we have our hope in. It's what we are hoping will be the payoff of the promises. And so we just have to, as human beings, we have to guard against the things that we overly treasure. It's fine that my sons want to watch Ohio State football. I want to watch Ohio State football with them. But as my son and I talked last night, it's not the most important thing. Son, you've got to be able to wake up tomorrow morning, even if they lose, because there's other things going on. There's another reality. There's a spiritual reality. There's an eternal kingdom that we're living for. 
Those things are true. And so whatever I get caught up in here, can't overly get caught up in it because it's not what's eternal. Guarding our hearts. When I look at the state of the church, to not allow myself to become discouraged, when I see people's moral failure, we see about this all the time, different Christian leaders who abandon the faith or have moral shortcomings, we should not be disappointed in that because our hope is not in them. Our hope is in Christ. They are not the state of of God's people. Jesus is the one who holds God's people and loves them and cleans them. And lastly, does the way you live life anticipate his second coming? Does the way you live life anticipate that Jesus is coming again? That it's not just a season, but my whole year is spent in preparation of that day when he's going to show up again. And that day for us is, will be a glorious time because he will wash us clean and he's going to set things to right. So I just, as in closing, what are you anticipating this holiday season? Because that which you are anticipating this season is the very thing that has your hope. Let me pray for us. Jesus, you are, you are the real meat of this thing. That you are gracious towards us. That even when we are half-hearted, when we are disinterested, when we feel lost or confused, Lord, when we feel the pervading, prevailing darkness within or outside of our world, Lord, that you are the one who focuses our attention on you and you're coming again that you love us, that you care for us, that you have a glorious future for us. Father, would you help turn our hearts towards that future, that reality, that we would live in light of that, and that we would expectantly be looking forward to the day that you come again. Amen.